0: Welcome to McKinsey on Government. Each episode examines one of the hardest problems facing government today and solutions from McKinsey experts and other leaders. I'm the host of McKinsey on Government, Francis Rose. High profile cyber breaches in government, the private sector and academia have technology and security leaders rethinking the basics about their cyber postures. The federal government's under orders to build more cyber resilience into its systems. That's the subject of McKinsey on Government this week with Tucker Bailey, partner at McKinsey & Company, and former Congressman Will Hurd, former chairman of the House Oversight and Government Reform Information Technology Subcommittee. Gentlemen, thanks very much for coming on the program today. Will, I start with you. You had a reputation on the Hill as somebody who was really well-versed and cared greatly about cybersecurity issues, especially resilience. What have you seen in the time that you've been off the Hill that, you think is either a good thing or a bad thing as far as the federal government's posture, cybersecurity wise?
1: Well, I I think the the posture has shown that the the cracks that we've always seen are are getting larger, right? And they're being taken advantage of by, by more, by more adversaries. Um, I think ransomware is a perfect example, but everybody thinks I'm strange when I say GAO is one of my favorite entities in the government, but they have highlighted many of the problems. That we have seen in our digital infrastructure for, for a number of years, and it goes back to if you do the basics in good digital hygiene, right, um, then you'll, you're gonna, you're protecting yourself uh, against against most people, right? We shower, we brush our teeth, we comb our hair, uh, we we do all those things in our personal hygiene, and we should be doing those basic things um, in our digital hygiene. So, so since I've been out, you've seen. Um, that those problems we, we identified are, are more critical. But, but also, I've seen how um, the technology that can be used to take advantage of our digital infrastructure is, is increasing in complexity. And when, when the future of cybersecurity is going to be good AI versus bad AI, um, and we are definitely not uh, prepared for that situation.
0: Tucker, welcome. It's good to have you on the, the program today, too um will talks about the basics of good digital hygiene that's something every chief information officer and every CISO that I've talked to in the federal government for 15 years has said and yet we're still having this conversation 15 years after I started and I certainly wasn't there at the beginning do you see anything either in existence today on the threat landscape or across the horizon that makes you think that that won't still be necessary that I mean the fact that we still have to talk about it means that it must still be a challenge or an issue right
2: yeah I I think it's a yes and Francis I I think basic cyber hygiene is going to continue to be table stakes but you know as we talked about with the rising threat landscape and kind of new techniques and new vectors folks are going to have to move at a a dual speed right they're going to have to continue to make progress on the basics of cyber hygiene but they're going to have to look forward and think about what are the next generations of threats, right? Be it automated AI-driven threats, or be it the use of new techniques, hybrid cyber campaigns, et cetera. So it's uh, it's it's both, right? You can't can't fall asleep on this one,
0: Tucker. If we had this yeah. conversation a year ago, we probably would have been talking about phishing um, as something that was over the horizon, and now this is something. I got one at work today. And sad to say, I failed the test because it looked like it was coming from my boss. I was very well executed. Fortunately, it was a test and not a threat. So I didn't blow anything up. But when you think about that, I'm somebody that talks about cybersecurity every day of my life. And I blew it. And I wonder, how does one anticipate what the next generation of threats is going to be? In order to do that, you have to think like the bad guys. And good guys don't normally think like bad guys, do they?
2: Uh, you're, you're speaking my language, Francis. You know, the, uh, the attackers are limited only by their creativity and ingenuity. Uh, I, I hate to say it. And a lot of the counsel that we give our clients is, is just that, right? You know what's important to you, but that may not be what's important to the adversary. You have a view of your infrastructure and your network, but that may not be the same view that the adversary has. So putting yourself in threat space and looking at your own organization as an adversary and thinking about what's the campaign they would run against us and how do our controls align against that potential campaign
0: how do you shape a response either policy wise or operationally will based on having to think that way you have to think like the bad guys in order to decide how you're going to prepare yourself to deal with the bad guys
1: the latest buzzword is is zero trust right where your your systems are designed where you can't even trust people on the inside, and and so so designing your architecture of your systems to where um, even though someone may have to have this information, you have to have um, uh, uh, procedures in place in in order to to confirm that, that that person should have access to it. It's going to be hard in, in order to vindicate this. We're also there's there's new technologies that are coming out. Um, to defend against runtime protection the, the notion is okay we know this this application we know how it's supposed to how it's supposed to work right and we know the 10,000 ways that it may be used in a good way but that ten thousand the first time that it operated, it's going to stop, right? And so this is this is going to require artificial intelligence to do this. You know, there are there are companies that are starting to do this, which which is going to help because it may actually prevent the need for patching, uh, because you know how the system is supposed to work in, in in a in a perfect world, right? But but the the reality is the next level of technology that's coming. When you know quantum computing and making sure that we have quantum resilient encryption, it, we have to start thinking about this now. Um, you know, uh, we should be thinking about about uh, quantum supremacy or an adversary getting quantum supremacy the way we were thinking about Y2K. I think the three of us are old enough to remember billions of dollars are put into it. I remember driving in West Texas on Y2K Day being like, man, if something's going to happen, and, and it didn't, and it was kind of like a big nothing, but it, we put time, energy, and effort in doing this. And and guess what? Our adversaries are suck, sucking up as much ciphertext as they possibly can on every industry, and they're going to be able to break it, once you have a, a quantum computer. So that means starting right now, look, it's been starting for years, but think about right now, am I protecting my information right now? Because at some point in the future, and, and I would say being connected to the to the national security um, apparatus for 21 years, I've learned that the assessments of the security community the national security community is usually whatever they say, divide by two, divide by half, right? We're going to be at that 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 quantum supremacy point sooner rather than later. And so this is a whole nother game. And imagine our adversaries having all of our information on banking and financials on on intellectual property. This is the this is such a this is such a a nebulous concept for so many people to think through that it's going to make these debates we're having now and talking about ransomware look like a pillow fight. And so we have to be prepared for that that situation.
0: What, Tucker, does one do if one is in a position of leadership inside a federal agency that I don't mean to pick on the folks at the Energy Department, but for example, they have their own cybersecurity operation to run, and they have a very qualified leader there. Ann Duncan's the new CIO, and she's very experienced at all levels of government, but they also have responsibility through their CSER office at handling threat information about what's happening throughout the uh, energy infrastructure across the United States. So they're thinking about this from two different perspectives. And I wonder what that thought process about resilience should be going on in an organization like that, that has an internal facing and an external facing responsibility.
2: Yeah, I think there's two things there, Francis. and And first, the good news is that Government agencies, I think, see the threat in ways that, that they may not have in, in, in years past. And the new generation of leaders really understands what the threat landscape is. But they're playing the hand they're dealt, which often is antiquated IT infrastructure. And at the same hand, the second piece that you talked about is for those agencies that have a regulatory or oversight responsibility, how do they engage with their private sector components uh, who actually operate the critical nat- national infrastructure? You know, on the first piece, uh, some of it is playing that remediation game, and some of that basic hygiene that we talked with. I do think the executive order uh, that the administration recently issued has some very constructive first steps in there. And things like, you know, Will mention zero trust and moving to zero trust. Plans to transition to cloud architectures, but also some things that aren't traditionally thought about for cybersecurity technologists, which is what are our critical information assets, right? What is the data that we hold that would be of value to somebody else? And how do we protect that disproportionately? You know, on the second half of your question, you know, how do they engage with private sector components for holistic national defense? This is an area where you know, we've seen significant improvement as we talk to our clients in the private sector, they are seeing government agencies start to meet them halfway. And, you know, as you think about what is the next phase of that, it's it's understanding how do they actually operate their business, right? What are the incentives for them? And how do you make engaging with the government and government agencies, at best a friction-free, or at minimum a friction-free experience, and at best a, you know, business and mission enhancing experience. And so that, that kind of customer experience concept is one where I think you're going to see more emphasis going forward.
0: Haven't people always thought about customer experience versus cybersecurity, though, Tucker, as exactly that, that, that they're at loggerheads with each other and that they're not compatible. We're going to make it harder for whether it's an internal or external customer. The more security we put in place, the harder we're going to make it to do business with us.
2: It, it, it has been, but I think, you know, with some of the technology that's coming out, it's a bit of a, an artificial dichotomy. Where you see leaders moving out on this, they're actually doing both, right? They're in, increasing their, you know, customer experience and customer value proposition and increasing the security, right, and it's worth recognizing that, that customers increasingly value security and so they don't necessarily see additional security as a trade-off, but as a as an enhancing feature. The fact that I don't always have to put in a username and password if I have multi-factor authentication. Well, to me, that's a better experience than you know banging out these these passwords all the time, and it increases security. And so you know some of those creative solutions, and I think the next generation of you know what's what's after multi-factor. That's where we're limited by our own creativity. And I think there are some very interesting companies coming out of the the technology infrastructure that are starting to address that and you know, increase the value proposition to customers and users and increase security at the same time.
0: Will you're just a couple of months removed from direct oversight into these issues and and direct interaction with the executive branch leaders that are doing both the internal and external types of interaction with with the threat landscape that I described a few moments ago. Are you bullish, bearish, or neutral on the trajectory that federal government agencies are on in dealing with the threat landscape?
1: I got to agree with something Tucker had said earlier. Federal CIOs completely understand the threat landscape and what's coming their way, right? I'm a... I'm a, a huge fan of all of our federal CIOs. You know, my time in Congress, I was always trying to give them more authority and, and ability. And, and, and Tucker pinpointed it. Sometimes, you know, they're, they're dealt the hand they're given. And then sometimes one of their hands is tied behind their back. And so they don't have the, the, they don't have the, the freedom and flexibility to do all the things that they probably would want to do. On their on their digital infrastructure, right? Which which is the biggest problem? Um, trying and and, and look, it, it's it's so funny when I when I was when I was in the CIA thinking about running for Congress, and I'm in a tent in the Hindu Kush mountains. I didn't think that I'd become the IT procurement guy in, in Congress, right? But but I, I spent a lot of time focusing on IT procurement because you know the, the problem ultimately is. The person using the IT good and service is different than the person purchasing the IT good and service. And that disconnect is, 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 is gigantic. And that creates a lot of the problems. And so that's where we need to make sure we're empowering the CIOs, because all these folks are smart. They know the threats that are coming. They're getting all the reports and reviews, um, but sometimes they're restricted uh, by the flexibilities within their budget. And so, so we also saw one of the things that I saw. And I never—I I, remember—I remember when I first got to Congress. You know, I didn't—I wasn't going to do oversight and government reform. I wasn't going to chair an IT subcommittee. But Jason Chaffetz at the time was the chairman from Utah, and I was—I had a background and I had my degrees in computer science. I had helped build a cybersecurity company, and he's like, "Hey, come do this thing." And the staff at the time was like, "There's this thing called FATARA. And it ultimately became a scorecard. And what I learned, the importance of oversight and government, what you shine a light on, people will focus on. And so when you focus on trying to do data center consolidation, and you always, you know, every time, every six months, people found out, oh, we actually had more data centers than we thought. right? You know, and they were always constantly finding stuff. Oh, we're not doing two-factor authentication, right? You know, oh, the password to you know the system the administrator's password is password right oh wait a minute we have like we only thought we had 5 um, you know uh, licenses for the software we had a thousand right and and so so they're 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 trying to focus on those things that are a problem but but they need the flexibility to move at the speed of the threat. and that is where the gears of of government sometimes get in the way
2: let me pick up on one of the things that you mentioned which is You know, sometimes security um, initiatives are a dual use, right? And so if you can reduce your surface area by reducing the number of licenses, well, that's a cost savings. If you can reduce the surface area by retiring legacy applications that may be out of support, right, oftentimes there are significant cost and productivity savings as well. So, you know, security officers partnering with, you know, the, the broader IT organization, to think through how do we modernize, how to increase productivity, how do we take advantage of best-in-class COTS products right? that are, that are proven, right? You don't have to do custom development, which can be difficult to sustain and support, right? Oftentimes, you know, we, we see real win-win opportunities there.
1: It also gives us the opportunity to provide better digital-facing services, right? And guess what? When you provide better digital-facing services, you can make the government more efficient, Right, well, you know, one of the reasons that uh, you know trust in government is at an all-time low is because the inefficiencies uh, within the, the providing services, right? And so, so to your point, Tucker, you, you that that security can drive um, some of those savings, and some of those savings can drive a, a better services to the constituent.
0: Is there a risk of having too many things in the supply chain? boxes that need to be checked off in order for uh, companies to support the federal government, given that the government pretty much buys everything that it uses, cybersecurity-wise products or services from somebody else, and shouldn't, as you just said a few moments ago, Will, uh, shouldn't be creating this stuff on its own.
2: I see members of the, the defense industrial base and others who are looking to do business with the federal government think about security as a you know, an enhancing feature and not just a compliance feature. And so if we wanna sell in the government, you know, part of our sales pitch is gonna be, we're gonna come with an advanced level of security. And we're gonna, if we have software, we're gonna attempt to provide a a software bill of lading or a clean bill of health, or we can actually show, here's how we're doing our diligence on our supply chain. So that those products we're delivering are, you know, as, as remediated as possible from cyber threats. So I think that is driving very good behavior through the supply chain. You know, if you go back to the creation of the NIST cybersecurity framework, one of the things that I think that NIST was very thoughtful of in in driving adoption was using the levers of the federal government and some of the procurement levers to to drive adoption of the NIST framework. So you saw folks adopt that and, you know, there's, there's goodness that's happening throughout the supply chain. On the other hand, you have to be thoughtful about you know, are we putting too much burden on non-traditional providers to the government to demonstrate compliance and hygiene? And are you inadvertently limiting, you know, some innovative companies that the look at the burden of doing work with the federal government to be too high? And I, I do think there's recognition there and there's some intermediaries that are helping to to cross that bridge. But I do think that's a watch out as well.
1: A lot of new industries that that we think are new and different ultimately end up cutting corners, um, because they can. If I'm building a tire, I know where all those elements come from, right? If I'm a chef, and I'm putting together some fancy meal, I know where all my ingredients are coming from, right? And, And guess what, when it comes to software, we need to know where every bit of code is coming. And this, this, there, there was this, there was a, there was a, a focus on like open source, right? Like everybody thought that open source was a great sign of, you know, that that the that the code it doesn't have have holes in it. Well, not everything is Red Hat Linux, right? That you know thousands, if not tens of thousands, of of people have looked at and banged on to try to find problems, right? And so you should be able to figure out where your code is. And you need to be thinking about this when you're developing your software, plain, plain and simple. And 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 I think that gets to, um, you know, it shouldn't be a it shouldn't be a overly burdensome compliance problem because you should already know where it is, right? And and so you know, if if I'm um, I'm getting ready to go on a trip, I know everything I'm putting in my bag. So you know, so it shouldn't be hard for me to be like, oh my god, I got to tell you everything. Well, I already know what's there. And so so that's where we're going to have to
0: go. And We're starting to run out of time, gentlemen, and I want to focus on the one piece of this. I know, Will, you spent a ton of time on this in Congress, um, but we haven't talked about it much on this program yet. And that's what does the cyber workforce look like in the federal government and what should it look like in the coming years? Tucker, I'll start with you. How do you think about what we talked about earlier as far as the future of the threat landscape in terms of the skills that the workforce should have to be able to meet that future threat landscape?
2: I'm actually quite bullish on this topic, Francis. And I I think, you know, in years past, government leaders have bemoaned the fact that, gosh, we can't pay enough to attract and retain the best in cybersecurity talent because they're going to the banks or they're going to Silicon Valley, et cetera. But I think you see two things. One is, uh, a lot of people who go into the cybersecurity world are incredibly mission-driven, right? And the one thing that government can provide that the private sector can't always provide is that sense of mission, right? You are protecting the most critical assets to the United States. You can you play on that? The second is the experience and capabilities that they give those folks, right? And it may be that there's a different model that's required. We're we're not expecting someone to come to the government and you know work for 20 years and draw a pension because that's not how digital talent thinks and works but talking about that value problem come to us for four years right learn best practice kind of at the coal face with nation-state adversaries sharpen your sword and you become that much more marketable in the private sector and then once you go out and you know conquer the world in private sector, maybe you come back into government. You play a, a leadership or executive role. So I think there are some things that agencies can do there, and and we're seeing some of that as well. I also think that the pool of talent that they can draw from is increasing. I think the demand signal has gone out, and you're seeing academia respond with you know undergraduate and graduate level cybersecurity programs. So the talent supply is increasing. Um, as well and when we did research into this what we found is the compensation piece is only one factor of you know an individual's decision about their job right they're looking for quality of life sense of purpose community ability to build their own capabilities and tool sets right and I think these are things that government agencies can and do compete on
0: will uh, you, Hammered and hammered and hammered and hammered on the workforce and the need to build a, a successful, healthy one when you were in Congress. Are you as encouraged about the future of the workforce specifically for the executive branch of the federal government as Tucker is?
1: Yes. Look, the long-term pipeline is going to be built. I'm more concerned about the medium term. There's a lot of great talent that's coming back into the federal government, like Tucker talks about, that had, you know, great experience in the in the, in the the private sector, and they're coming back at, at senior levels. But, you know, I think it's a million by, you know, by 2025, it's probably going to be a million positions within the federal government that require some kind of cybersecurity needs, right? Um, I, I know we can build that pipeline. My father is 87 years old, and every time I'm with him, he always talks about cyber. My dad doesn't know how has never used a <laughs> computer, can't type, and he's like, we need more that's these kids nowadays need to be going into cyber. So if my 87-year-old dad, if it's if it's sunk into his head that this is needed, then, then long term we're gonna be okay. But how do we deal with this current gap and shortage that that we have? That's the most difficult thing. And that requires not every job needs a PhD in cybersecurity. Not every job may need a BS in in computer science, and so so making sure that the positions that are 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 you know are, that are across the federal government, we understand what the real skill set is needed within that position. That didn't exist three or four years ago. Um, that change is is, is slowly happening, so that we know the kind of skill set we need in order to get people into those into those jobs. And 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 everybody recognizes that. And we're trying to do de- that. But also, I think the federal government is starting to realize, hey, we don't know everything and that we should be relying on the private sector a little bit more. Uh, we don't have to build everything. We should be buying it from the private sector and using these tools that already exist. And so I, I think you're seeing some of that change. That's going to also help us um, deal with that with that, with that, that personnel gap that we have. But long term, yes, I, I feel good. We're going to meet that need. Uh, but that short term, this is the period where it's really hard.
0: I have a problem. I have... Like five more big questions and a ton of things that I've scribbled down over the course of this conversation. We're out of time, so I'd love to have both of you come back and continue this discussion another time.
1: I would we'll love, love to, Francis. Always, uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you.
0: You've been listening to McKinsey on Government, a presentation of McKinsey and Company. Our next episodes in a couple of weeks. You can subscribe to get McKinsey on Government everywhere you get your shows. I'm the host of McKinsey on Government, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.